Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Um, there is a story in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul is traveling around uh, the Roman Empire, and he comes to the great city of Ephesus, which is in the province of Asia. Um, Ephesus is one of the most beautiful and important cities in the empire, and what made it so well known was the Temple of Artemis. This is a picture of what it would have looked like. Um, people journeyed from all over the empire to this ancient temple to worship the Greek god or Greek goddess of Artemis. Um, in fact, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, Greek poets said that it was such a magnificent wonder that compared to all of the other wonders, including the pyramids of Egypt, they all paled in comparison to the temple of Artemis. So uh, Paul comes to the city of Ephesus. He spends two years there telling people about uh, Jesus. And the book of Acts tells us that many people, both Greeks and Jews, became followers of Jesus. And it began to change their lives because when you begin to follow Jesus, you realize that your life is not your own anymore, that you belong to him. And that's not confining, that's not constricting. Actually, it's, it's quite liberating. And so uh, these new followers of Jesus began to throw off their old beliefs and their old habits and their old idols. And this causes problems. Acts tells us this, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. That's what the Jesus movement was called early on. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades. And he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. And there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Uh, do you see what's happening here? Um, basically, when the people become followers of Jesus... They stop going to the temple of Artemis to worship the statues and the idols that are there. And Demetrius is saying, um, if we don't do something about this, nobody's going to make pilgrimages to Ephesus anymore. Nobody will buy our goods anymore. And so look at how the craftsmen respond. When they heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. Now, the story goes on, we won't read the rest, to tell us that a massive riot breaks out in the city because the people of Ephesus had built their lives. They had even built their livelihood on this shrine, this temple, this idol. Um, it was such a huge part of their culture. In fact, they were deeply proud of it, and they couldn't imagine life without it. So when the way of Jesus threatened this idol, there was fierce resistance. Fierce protection of the idol. Uh, now, I begin with that story uh, because today I want to point out one of our most cherished idols. Maybe the most cherished idol in our culture. It's something we're very proud of. And it's something that 
If you're a follower of Jesus or you're on a journey of faith, um, I want to challenge you to stop worshiping this idol. Now, I don't claim to be Paul, and I hope there's not a riot today. Um, But as I've become more aware of this idol in my own life, if you're anything like me, you will be fiercely resistant and protective of this idol in your life. Because you won't be able to really imagine life without it. So uh, with that in mind, let's just jump right in. The idol is self-improvement. That's the idol that we all worship. Now, before you think that's that's crazy, uh, let me explain to you what this means. You could say that we believe in a gospel of self-improvement. And the gospel of self-improvement is this, the promise that better techniques will lead to better lives. And there is a better technique for everything right? There's a better technique for how you mow your yard or how you rake the leaves in the fall. There's a better technique for how to plan your vacation, how to book your tickets, how to choose what restaurant to go to. There's a better technique for how to parent your kids, for how to do your work, for how to manage your money, for how to arrange your living space, for how to resolve conflict with your spouse or a roommate, for how to feed your pets and how to win your fantasy football league, right? And the promise is always that better techniques will lead to better lives. In fact, there was a famous uh, French philosopher and theologian named Jacques Ellul, and he wrote a whole lot about this idea of technique. And he said this, and I'm just going to paraphrase what he said because his language is very technical and philosophical and dense, but he essentially said this, technique is a method aimed at greater efficiency, productivity, and optimization. And it's not just one technique, it's the sum total of all the techniques, all the methods that we bring to bear on every single human activity in order to improve every single aspect of our lives. And that these techniques and methods are always aimed at the values of efficiency, productivity, and optimization. In other words, we're pretty much constantly asking, how can I do more? How can I achieve more? How can I produce more, accomplish more with less resources and in less time? How can I become more efficient? How can I optimize every single aspect of my life? So, for example, we all use smartphones to get everywhere, right? Uh, Because it's fast and it's easy and it's efficient to just plug the address into Apple Maps or to Google Maps. I don't have to use one of those paper maps anymore. I don't have to ask for directions and then try to remember them. I don't even have to pay attention to where I'm driving, right? My phone will tell me exactly when to turn and what to do. So I can do other things while I'm driving. In fact, pretty soon I won't even have to drive the car. Another example, um, we just bought a new espresso machine. It's not that I couldn't make a good cup of coffee before. I could. It took about five to ten minutes every morning to grind the beans, to heat up the water, to make a pour over. Uh, But this new machine is pretty amazing. All I have to do is turn it on and press one button. And it automatically grinds the beans for me. It packs the coffee. It heats the water. And it creates the perfect espresso in about 24 seconds. Talk about efficiency. It's amazing. Now, this isn't all about just technology. Think about our work for a second. 
Isn't every new technique or method that we adopt at work aimed at greater efficiency and productivity and optimization? Even the things that we aren't aware are focused on that. For example, uh, many workplaces are now giving their employees more benefits, more flexibility, more perks, more options to work from home, nicer break rooms with free snacks for everybody, right? And do you know why companies are doing this? Because study after study shows that these benefits create more productive employees. It's a technique. I mean, they say they care about you as a person, and I'm guessing they do. But by giving you these benefits, they know that you're going to be more efficient and more productive. If these benefits made you less efficient and less productive, you wouldn't be receiving them. Uh, One more example. Parenting. Uh, The word parent, up until about 30 or 40 years ago, was only a noun. It was something you were. Now it's a verb. It's a job. It's about the methods and styles and techniques to become a more effective parent. Psychologist Alison Gopnik describes it this way. The goal of parenting is to somehow turn your child into a better or happier or more successful adult. The right kind of parenting will produce the right kind of child who will in turn become the right kind of adult. The promise of parenting is that there is some set of techniques some particular expertise that parents could acquire that would help them accomplish the goal of shaping their children's lives. And so there are countless books and seminars and podcasts and methods and styles and techniques on how to become the perfect parent. And that's really the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of the gospel of self-improvement is perfection. Now, we would never say that, right? Uh, All parents know they can't be perfect parents, but isn't that what we're really striving for? And not just in parenting, but in everything. The perfect cup of coffee, the perfect yard, the perfect vacation, the perfect job. And again, we don't use the word perfect, but the fact that we keep striving over and over and over to make everything better, everything faster, everything more efficient, everything more optimized, and the fact that we're never surprised with where we are and we're always pushing forward, isn't that an indication that we are indeed seeking perfection? Now, I know what you might be thinking at this point. What's so bad about saving a little bit of time in the morning, making a cup of coffee? What's so bad about using our phone to help us get somewhere quicker so I can focus on other things? What's so bad about wanting to be a better parent or a more productive employee? What's so bad about wanting to improve ourselves, improve our lives? And the answer is nothing, really. There's nothing inherently bad about the desire to improve some aspect of your life and then giving some attention to that area. But I'm not sure any of us have actually stepped back to consider the bigger picture, to actually see how this gospel of self-improvement infuses and dominates every aspect of our lives. And to begin to see, and this is the most important, how it rarely fulfills what it actually promises. Because there are some inherent problems with the gospel of self-improvement. Let me just describe a few. Uh, Problem one, the gospel of self-improvement has become ubiquitous and indispensable. 
It's ubiquitous in our lives, and we don't even realize it. And our entire culture and economy is built upon it. Most of the industries and jobs that we work in do not provide essential human needs. They provide ways for people to optimize and perfect and improve their lives. And that doesn't mean your work or our work is bad. That doesn't mean an industry is evil or anything like that. It just means that the gospel of self-improvement is so indispensable in our culture now, it's virtually impossible for anyone to question it. If somebody came along and said, that God is not a real God, It's actually become an idol that we're worshiping and it's burdening our lives more than improving our lives. Well, that would be like questioning the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. It would begin to cause a riot. Problem two, the gospel of self-improvement subjugates all other values underneath efficiency and productivity, meaning there are other values that are important in our lives, uh, but the pursuit of self-improvement all the time tends to elevate productivity and efficiency above everything else. All other values become secondary because there is value in learning directions to get somewhere. There is value in paying attention to the geography while I'm driving It's just so much easier to plug the address into my phone and let it tell me what to do so I can focus on other things. There is value in perhaps making a cup of coffee more slowly, but it's just so tempting when a machine can do it faster and better. There is value in not working ourselves to death. We know the value there, right? It's less stress. It's more time with the people we love. It's being more present to what God is up to in our lives. But the allure of productivity is just too strong. The allure of making more money so I can do more things, it ends up trumping all other values. One other problem, uh, problem three, the gospel of self-improvement turns us into machines. Productivity and efficiency are what we expect of machines. These concepts first came out of the Industrial Revolution when people first began to ask the question, how do we design machines to go faster and do more? And if it breaks, it's just a machine. But we're not machines. We're human beings made in God's image. And we're exhausted and we're empty Because in our quest to be perfect humans, we're actually dehumanizing ourselves. Uh, Anne Helen Peterson is a cultural observer, and she describes what this is doing to millennials. She's a millennial herself. She writes, All of this optimization as children in college online culminates in the dominant millennial condition, regardless of class or race or location. Burnout. And you don't fix burnout by going on vacation. You don't fix it through life hacks like Inbox Zero or by using a meditation app for five minutes in the morning or doing Sunday meal prep for the entire family or starting a bullet journal, right? Because these are all self-improvement techniques. The problem, she says, with holistic, all-consuming burnout is that there's no solution to it. You can't optimize it to make it end faster. You can't see it coming like a cold and start taking the burnout prevention version of Airborne. 
the best way to treat it is to first acknowledge it for what it is, not a passing ailment, but a chronic disease. Now, you don't have to just listen to what psychologists and cultural observers are saying, though I think she and others are right. They're seeing what optimization and the gospel of self-improvement are doing to us. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're on a journey of faith, I want you to notice just a few other things. First, notice how the gospel of self-improvement underscores the belief that I am my own and I belong to myself. That's where we started in this whole series a few weeks ago. The idea that it's always up to me to improve to optimize and to perfect myself. And that idea is part of the problem. So it's not going to be part of the solution. It adds more burdens, more exhaustion, more emptiness, because it fails to recognize a core biblical truth that you are not your own and that you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. Uh, Second, I want you to notice the total and utter lack of, of self-improvement, efficiency, and productivity language in the Bible. God never says that he helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. God never asks us to improve our lives, to be more productive, to get more efficient. In fact, almost all of the practices and habits and transformation that God invites us to participate in are quite inefficient. And they're not very productive in the ways that we measure productivity. Uh, You know, I did think of one story in the Bible where efficiency and productivity play a central role. It's Exodus chapter 5, when Pharaoh commands the people of Israel to work harder and harder and harder, to meet their production schedules, to maintain their quotas. And when they complain about being exhausted, he takes the straw away from them and he asks them to do more with less. The people of Israel are machines in the Egyptian production system. And God rescues them from that system. And when he does, do you remember? He gives them two, uh, ten new commandments to live their lives by. And do you remember what the longest of these commandments is? He says, one day a week, I want you to stop doing all of your work. Not, not because work is bad. Work is good, right? Work six days a week. But one day a week, I want you to stop doing all of your work. I want you to be entirely unproductive and inefficient so that you can remember that I take care of you. I will provide for you. Your identity is not wrapped up in an endless cycle of productivity. There's another story from the New Testament about this idea. Many of us are familiar with it. Luke chapter 10 says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. 
You see what's happening? Martha is working hard, right? There's lots to be done. There's a meal to be prepared, food to cook. There's all these unexpected guests. And so she's working really hard and she's thinking, I could get so much more done if Mary would come in and help me. Why is she being so lazy? Why is she sitting there doing nothing, wasting her time while I'm doing all the work? And so she says to Jesus, right, don't you care that I'm doing all the work and she's doing nothing? Tell her to come help me. And when she says that, She's making a value judgment. What she's saying is the most valuable things right now are productivity and efficiency above whatever it is that Mary is wasting her time doing. And she thinks Jesus would agree with her. She doesn't just think this. She says it out loud. Don't miss that. She thinks that Jesus thinks that hard work and productivity and efficiency are the most important things right now. And I think we're the same way. We have so elevated productivity and efficiency that we probably think Jesus wants us to work really hard our entire lives to be the best at everything we could possibly be and improve in every single area of our lives. And we're about as close to understanding Jesus' heart as Martha was. Because here's what he said. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. He's saying, Martha, you're working so hard, and I get it. You're you're stressed out, right? And and if efficiency and, and productivity are the most important values, then you probably should be stressed out, because there's so much to do. But those are not the most important values. In fact, Mary has chosen what's most important, which in this moment is just hanging out with me. It's just being present with me. It's not very efficient, and it certainly doesn't seem productive. And that leads to one more thing I want you to notice if you're a follower of Jesus. It's a value that the Bible describes of God and his people, and it is the complete opposite of efficiency and productivity. It's the value of prodigality. Uh, Prodigality means extravagance or lavish abundance that appears wasteful. And you've probably heard the term prodigal, and we tend to think of it negatively because Jesus one time tells a story about a son who comes and takes all of his inheritance from his dad, and then he goes and he spends it all, and he wastes it, and he has nothing to show for it. And so we call him the prodigal son. But we worship a prodigal God. A God who chose to create this world and all of us out of the abundance of his love, not because he needed to. A God who lavishes his grace on all of us more than we could ever need, even though we haven't earned it. A God who offers life and salvation to all, knowing many will reject it. A God who does not calculate the cost of his grace, his own son's life, and decide, you know what, I don't think it's worth it. A God who does not determine the course of action based on what's most efficient or most productive. A God who is deeply patient and prodigal in his love towards all of us. And a God who invites all of us to be people of prodigality 
So Jesus comes back to Mary and Martha's house one more time. It's the last week of his life, and we're told this is what happens, John 12. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, right? Because that's what she's always doing. And while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them, Lazarus was their brother, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. The perfume was worth tens of thousands of dollars. In Matthew's telling of the story, Judas says, why this waste? Do you know what we could have done with this money? Do you know how many more people we could have served? Do you know how much more productive and efficient we could have been? And he's right. They could have. They could have served so many more people in seemingly better ways if productivity and efficiency were the highest values. If they were, then Mary should have been scolded for what she did. But Jesus doesn't scold her. He honors her because she chose prodigality. So, <clears throat> what do we do with all of this? Well, last week, Emily encouraged all of us, when we're exhausted and empty, to resist self-medication. And so today, I want to simply encourage you to resist self-improvement, which is probably the last piece of advice you would have thought would come at the end of a sermon, right? Don't improve your life. <clears throat> but I hope by now you know that I'm not suggesting that you go throw your phone away or that you get rid of all technology or you start trying to become more unproductive at work or try to be a terrible parent this week, right? Um, or if anyone happened to buy a new espresso machine, you don't have to give it back. But here are a few quick suggestions for what it might look like to resist self-improvement. Begin to notice the values of self-improvement, efficiency, and productivity everywhere. And then find one or two areas of your life where you push back. One or two areas of your life where you decide, I'm going to uphold other values that are more important at the expense of productivity and efficiency. Practice a day of Sabbath. This is tough. An entire day every week where you are not productive or efficient. A day where you're reminded you are not a machine. You are God's daughter or son. And he cares for you deeply. Consider the values lost when you think about adopting a new technology. So before I get a new device or download a new app or use whatever new technology I'm thinking about using that's going to help me be more efficient, that's okay. Just ask the question, what am I going to lose by adopting this? Uh, stop valorizing the most productive people. Think about the way that we valorize the people who work the longest hours, the students with the highest GPAs, the people who pack their schedules and overachieve in every aspect of their lives. We are valorizing the Marthas. We need to stop doing that. And then last, practice prodigality. Maybe just love or serve 
or give in some way this week that feels a little bit wasteful, a little bit extravagant, and begin making it a practice, it won't be easy. It goes against everything we've ever done. We'll need God's grace in the process, but if we're followers of Jesus, it's who we are. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that in the next few moments you would just help us to reflect first on how prodigal you are towards us in your love and your grace. And then help us to find our identity in knowing that we're yours and that we can live out that prodigality in our own lives. And God, for those of us who are here who maybe are exhausted and tired from working too much, from trying too hard, from the burdens that we place on ourselves, I pray that you would help us to just find rest, to open our hands and surrender our lives to you in whatever that way looks like. I pray this in your name. Amen.